You're listening to the Irish Times. Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. That's up in the air. He's getting under it. This could be victory. It is. Pakistan win the World Cup. Imran Khan is ready side. 26 years after he cemented his status as a national hero by leading Pakistan to victory in the Cricket World Cup, Imran Khan is closer than ever to achieving his goal of becoming his country's Prime Minister. More than 100 million voters will have the opportunity to decide whether he achieves this or not in an election on Wednesday that follows a highly contentious campaign marked by allegations of vote rigging and corruption and punctuated by violence. That's our main story this week. As politicians at Westminster prepare to break up for the summer recess, I'll be talking later to Dennis Staunton about the latest on the Brexit story. But first, Lorraine Malander, our correspondent in Pakistan, joins me now on the line from Lahore. Lorraine, there's much to talk about in this election, but let's start with Imran Khan. This has been described as his last and best chance of securing power. How close is he to achieving it? Well, his PTI party and the rival PMLN, they're neck and neck, but there have been polls showing the Khan's PTI just kind of nudging ahead. Um, the, the PPP, the, the Pakistan People's Party, which is which is ruled or controlled by the Bhutto dynasty, um, I guess is the kind of wild card in this election. Lorraine, we'll come back to those kind of various parties in a moment because there's quite a lot of, I suppose, um, acronyms there and initialisms for our listeners to to get to grips with. And of course, Pakistani politics have been dominated by two political dynasties you mentioned, the Sharifs and the Bhutos, and I suppose also by the military. But those two dynasties are still there. They haven't gone away. But tell us something first about Imran Khan's rise to, to the threshold of power. How has he done it? Well, I mean, he's been at it for 22 years now. And when he started off, I mean, he was he was a laughing stock. Um, if you go back to the nineteen ninety seven elections, the year after he set up the party, so we feel that it is time for fresh faces to come into Pakistani politics who do not have it, an interest to protect who this, uh, who do not have an interest to protect the status quo. They won no seats, so he's kind of the, the ironic thing is with all the kind of allegations of um, of, of, of collusion with with the military. Um, the ironic thing is, is that the party was initially, initially attracted a lot of young people, um, you know, with, with, you know, Khan had a kind of anti-military stance at the time. He, I, I guess he was kind of basing the movement on, you know, it could have been likened to the, the anti-Vietnam war campaign in the US back in the 60s. He was kind of aiming for, for that, kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and that was his appeal initially. Um, over the years, um, yeah, he's, he's always been the kind of outsider party. The main contenders have always been the Sharifs and the Bhutos. And now, for the first time, we see him as a real contender. And even as recently as, as 2013, going into the election in 2013, his party, the PTI, had, had one seat in Parliament, namely himself. They then won, I think, 34 seats of the 342 in the last election. And I think he had hoped to win a lot more. And that was a disappointing result for him. So then over the past few years, how has he kind of tweaked or tailored his message to to get to where he is now? The the main thing after the 2013 election um, were the, the allegations of rigging. You know, he and his supporters were out on the streets in the immediate aftermath of, of that election, which saw um, Sharif's uh, PMLN party come out on top. Um, since then, he's really kind of gone hard at the, the, the anti-corruption message. And in fact, if um, Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, 
is now in prison is partly because of this um, this nonstop campaigning um, against corruption. And and how does he stand with religious conservatives? I mean, his own lifestyle would be perceived, I presume, as a liberal lifestyle. He's been divorced twice. That would seem to be anathema to, to many of the the people who support he would need. Um, a, 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 yeah, a liberal persona. I'm not sure because he has changed over the years. Um, definitely kind of turned away from a, a very kind of, you know, his very affluent, privileged, um, westernized background, um, become a lot more devout. Um, and, and there has been a lot of like um, criticism of him. You know, there's a there's a U.S. designated terror group um, called Harkat al-Mujahideen, whose leader has said, you know, he's backing PTI, which 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 doesn't doesn't look good. Um, but then you have to look at it. You have to take it in the context of his take, if you like, on the the U.S. war on terror. Um, he, he has very much taken on a you know a, a kind of dialogue, um, you know, an, an approach of you know dialogue of um, you know ending the the U.S. drone strikes in the border regions. Um, they're, 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 that's kind of all kind of part and parcel of it, if you like. Um, but yeah, I'd say that as a per, as a you know his, his kind of public persona has definitely kind of shifted over the years, and his new wife um, Bushra Maneka um, is is a, a, a spiritual he- healer. Um, so yeah, he you know and everywhere he goes, you know he's with his prayer beads and you know he's dressed in shalwar kameez, and so it's, it's a very different Imran Khan to the Imran Khan we knew back in his cricketing heyday, you know the the, the debonair playboy. And how about uh, Khan's support for blasphemy laws, which have been a controversial issue in this election? Absolutely, and he the, and he he has he's, he's he's backed these blasphemy laws, which have you know lead to you know often in the past we've seen like you know cases of of, of persecution, even murder of, of individuals who who question the the authority of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, the, the the big thing here is um, you know saying that. The Prophet Muhammad was not the last prophet. This is kind of the the, the worst thing you can you can say, the most controversial thing you can say in Pakistan. And and Khan has spoken out in favour of the blasphemy laws, attracting a hell of a lot of criticism from liberals. Um, his his argument on that is that well, having a law to kind of contain all this um, prevents it from becoming a, a free for all. Which okay, you you kind of. Um, you know, there are varying kind of there are varying opinions on that. But he's attracted a hell of a lot of criticism. Um, I was speaking to a diplomat in Islamabad, um, a European dis- diplomat, on that, and he was saying it's it's quite common actually for um, leaders to kind of say that kind of thing to 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 bring the kind of religious conservatives on board ahead of an election that he wouldn't expect him to 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 really kind of push forward on that after. After the election, that he but perhaps he'll moderate his stance on that after the election. We'll see what comes after afterwards. But certainly, a play for votes there. Yes, and now something you, you touched on there was the reference to that he's been dogged by an allegation really that the, the only reason really and the reason for his change in fortunes is the military has now thrown its its weight behind him and has I suppose abandoned the the, the sharifs um, in favour yeah. of him. Um, how much evidence is there to support that? There's not very. I mean, the thing is, is like military involvement in Pakistani politics goes way back. They've always been there. They've always, they've always had a hand. You know, whether overtly or covertly. Um, you know, ha- nearly half of the country's hi- um, history, um, the country's been ruled by military. Um, so, so that's always been there. And I don't think any government comes into power in this country without the 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 consent of the military, if you like. Now, what we can say 
with absolute certainty because the allegations have been denied by, by Khan's PTI party. The military, of course, deny any rigging. But what we can say with absolute certainty is they are dead set against the Sharif dynasty. Speaking of the Sharif dynasty, notwithstanding their troubles in, in the recent past, as you mentioned, Nawaz Sharif has now begun a, a, a prison sentence for corruption. But his party, the PMLN, is the ruling party and uh, led by his younger brother. And um, it, it's still sort of neck and neck with Khan's party, the PTI and the polls. So what is the appeal of this party? What kind of enduring appeal does it have for Pakistanis? Well, particularly in the Punjab, um, the province of Punjab, you've got a you know, huge proportion of the the country's contestable seats there are contestable seats and then there are seats that are allocated in the aftermath of the election but over half of those seats in the Punjab so the the saying goes you know whoever wins the Punjab wins the election the Sharif dynasty a very Punjabi um, dynasty they have had a lot of support here it is a you know the Punjab is a, a Sharif stronghold and although Imran Khan is himself from, from Punjab, I mean, he was born here, um, he, he grew up in Lahore, but his background is Pashtun from the, the kind of border areas with Afghanistan. He's not viewed as a, as a you know, a, a kind of true Punjabi, if you like. But um, there is a kind of sense that there are, you know, the, the, all these allegations of, of, of rigging in the background, but at the same time, Hand in hand with that, there is a kind of sense on the streets of of support for for change, if not for for Khan and and the PTI. Certainly, people have a sense that you know there, there there's a need for change that they they want to kind of break away from you know combined rule military and and, and the Sharifs and and the Bhutos. So we'll see how that pans out. But certainly, a lot of people on the street are saying that. And the PMLN has been given some credit, Lorraine, I think, for some successes in government, for example, addressing the problem of power cuts. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, and they have invested heavily in, in their stronghold um, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of, you know, the, you mentioned the electricity, um, the, the road networks. Um, you know, there is, there, there is um, you know, people here really have, um, you know, they, 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 you know if there's still a lot of support for this family, it's because, they, you know, the, the Nawaz Sharif has invested in the province. But the thing with, like, the Sharifs and the military, if you look at, like, this massive fallen out, um, you could kind of, okay, you, you could predate it because they, 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 were also, they were also, you know, in a collision course um, under the military dictatorship of Pervez Musharraf in the, not- in the noughties, yeah? Um, but th- this current war, if you like, between the Sharif dynasty and the military, you could take it back to 2016 when Shabazz Sharif, who's now running for prime minister um, in place of his jailed brother, um, actually kind of took on the military in a, in a secret meeting. And he was actually calling them out on their their alleged um, cultivation of links with Islamist militants. So you can, you can take it back to there. Also, there's a sense that the military aren't happy um, about the links um, of the Sharif dynasty with India. There's a lot of paranoia about the, the India-Pakistan question. So we've dealt really, I suppose, with Imran Khan, the, the PTI, and then you have the Sharifs and the, the PMLN. And then there's that the other dynasty we mentioned, uh, the Pakistan People's Party, the, the, the Bhutos. Where, where do they stand in all of this? Well, the Bhutos are um, a great Pakistani political dynasty. Um, the PPP, P- Pakistan People's Party, was founded by Zulfikar Bhutto in the 70s. He was in power. Um, he kind of, you know, really, I, I guess he kind of 
after partition, after the troubles of, of partition, the creation of Pakistan, this was the first leader to, to, to you know, the first strong leader um, after the death of Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, the first strong leader was Zulfikar Bhutto. Um, and a good quote from Zulfikar Bhutto was, um, you know, he was very, very kind of strong, kind of socialist leanings. Um, he nationalized a lot of industry. And um, he used to say, although he used to drink himself, he used to say, well, I may drink, but I don't drink the blood of the people. Um, now, after, you know, Zulfikar Bhutto, we have Benazir Bhutto, his daughter, who was in power here um, throughout the, you know, at various points during the 90s. She was murdered in 2007 um, after returning to the country, um, you know, really kind of taking on the military. Yes, and the son, he's, he's tw- 29-year-old son who's now the leader of the party, isn't that right? 29-year-old Bilawal, who's untested mm. politically. He's, he's an Oxford graduate. He's, his critics say he's been kind of parachuted into the country. He's had a good kind of, he's given a good performance during this election. In, in, in some ways, the, I mean, the narrative's kind of been handed to him on a plate, right? I mean, he's kind of talking about, you know, we won't, he's, he, he's against this kind of, you know, the, the puppet alliances. He's referring there to, to Khan's PTI and the allegations of collusion with the military. Um, you know, he's also kind of, you know, spoken out, you know, against the Sharif's PMLN and Khan's PTI kind of holding up, like, you know, they've taken the Punjab hostage, that's that's Bilawal Bhutto's line. Um, so we'll see how he gets on. I mean, the polls have him, uh, you know, he, he's, he, you know, the polls um, predict that he'll probably come third. Um, certainly, you know, what I'm hearing from party insiders is, well, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're playing the long game. They're viewing this, this is his kind of political baptism, if you like. And, um, you know, they're already kind of looking ahead to the next elections. And given that it's unlikely any party will have an overall majority, presumably he could end up being a, a kingmaker. He could end up being a kingmaker. Um, but the signs are that, um, and this is from PPP insiders, he, he would probably end up going with Khan's PTI. They say that they have no similarities. Their manifesto bears no similarities to, to, to either of the other two parties. Um, but the, the general sense is, is that they would probably go with the PTI. And what's the campaign been like, uh, Lorraine? I mean, have people been very engaged by it? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, the, the thing is here, um, you know, people, you know, Pakistan, really, they are a nation of political junkies, I'd say. Um, news programs here, you know, have, have huge ratings. People talking about the, the election, you know, everywhere. You talk to you talk to market traders, you talk to taxi drivers, you talk to people. People are really kind, of, really, really engaged in this. But as I mentioned at the outset, it has been marked by by some violent attacks, and there was one in which more, I think more than 130 people were killed. Has it been a particularly violent campaign? Oh yes, um, and this and this attack, particular attack you're referring to, at least 149 people killed, including an election candidate. Um, this was the second biggest in the country's history. Um, so yes, that, 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 that's, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, apprehension. Last night um, was um, Imran Khan's last rally, and the security there was absolutely tremendous. You saw people at the, the kind of entrance to the stage, you know, you had all the kind of party dignitaries who were kind of lining up to kind of get in after Khan and to appear on stage with him. And the security was that tight that they were actually fighting the, the guards to get to get through to, to Khan on stage. Wow, that's some image, all right, yeah. And uh, I suppose, uh, just to finish up, Lorraine, I mean, despite all of those problems, I mean, if Khan wins, I think it will be just the second time in Pakistan's 71-year history that we'll have had a, 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 a transfer of power from one civil administration to another. So I suppose, is there some reason for optimism, you know, from that fact alone? 
Um, is there some? Okay, I would say that. Okay, on the one hand, you know, even Khan's detractors do say that whatever the situation right now, um, whatever the the scale of military military rigging, and certainly the military want show the Sharifs out. They have um, annihilated the main opposition, if you like. Um, however, the debate has been opened. People are talking about the military now. They are, you know, this is a country where people did not raise these issues in the past, and people are talking about these things now. So the debate has been opened. Now, in terms of going forward, um, I think a lot, if you look at the background to this, I think that, you know, if you look at Donald Trump's, and I'm bringing a bit of foreign policy into this, but the war on terror, the the, the role of Pakistan as a policeman in the region, um, Donald Trump's first tweet of 2018 was enough of Pakistan's lies and deceit. Um, you know, we they, they are harboring terrorists from Afghanistan, no more, you know, and he and he's actually withheld a lot of aid for the country this year, already 255 million. So going forward, I'd say that you're looking at foreign, pol- foreign, foreign policy, looking at the, you know, the, the war on terror, the US, um, looking at um, India. Um, the, these are kind of like major, major factors in this going forward. And, and if the, the army is kind of involved in all this, well, this is a, it's kind of tradition in the country and with, with, with these kind of very high stakes. Uh, there's a saying in Pakistan that, that no, no one can govern this country without the backing of Allah, the army and America. And is it your own sense, Lorraine, from having travelled around covering the election over the past couple of weeks? I mean, do you, do, you, do you get a sense that people there are optimistic about the future and feeling more secure? Or, or, I'm getting the impression maybe the opposite. Huh. Well, I'm thinking like the CANS detractors, PTI detractors say they expect more of the same. They say, yes, there has been kind of, you know, heavy military involvement in the past. There has been, you know, any party that's in power in Pakistan, is, it has to kind of find an accommodation with the military. The Khan's detractors say it's, it's more of the same and he cannot be a legitimate leader. Um, uh, his, his supporters, well, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's kind of blind optimism. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of Khan's supporters, even Khan's supporters say that, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky tricky road ahead and you know if he has been happy to have the way paved for him by the military then he's got a hell of a challenge ahead of him in terms of managing the military afterwards okay well uh, Lorraine it's a fascinating election and, and it's great to get your views on it thanks a lot for that thank you very much and now to our almost weekly slot on Brexit and one suspects it would be a mightily relieved bunch of MPs on all sides of the House who will troop out of Westminster today, Tuesday, to begin the summer recess. Watching them with no less relief, perhaps, will be our London editor, Dennis Staunton, who joins me now. D- Dennis, given the way things have gone at Westminster over the past couple of weeks, do you think Theresa May, the Prime Minister, might be happy just to have made it this far with her government and party intact? Yes, yes, I think so. And also her leadership of her party is intact. There was a real danger over the last few weeks that uh, with everything that was happening in Parliament and with this feverish atmosphere within the Conservative Party, that there would be a move against her. And it takes just 48 MPs to trigger a vote of confidence. And while she and her people were confident that if they, if there were to be a vote of confidence, that they were, that she would win it, you can never be sure of these things once they start. And so she, I think she will be very pleased to have got to uh, the summer. And uh, now uh, what's going to happen next in terms of Brexit is that the, uh, the negotiations in Brussels carry on at official level all the way through August. And meanwhile, Theresa May and her ministers are going to be 
doing two things. One is going around uh, various European capitals. She will be uh, in Austria later this week talking to Sebastian Kurz and Jeremy Hunt, for example. The foreign secretary was in Berlin on Monday uh, to uh, to try to push the idea of their uh, their checkers proposal and to try to ensure that it gets some kind of a hearing from the member states and they, they, their hope is that the member states will then put pressure on the commission to give it uh, a, a, you know, a fairly sympathetic hearing. So they'll be doing that around Europe and then meanwhile they'll also be trying to sell this plan around Britain and uh, she, Theresa May, was in Gateshead in, uh, near Newcastle yesterday, and she was uh, trying to talk about uh, you know, how this, uh, this checkers proposal would keep the promise of Brexit on the one hand, but would also make sure that jobs would be protected. And then there's one other thing which is going to happen during the summer, which is that there's been a lot of complaining from the uh, Brexiteers that there hasn't been enough planning for the idea of a no-deal Brexit. So what the government is going to do over the next few weeks is to produce all these information notes about the kind of preparedness uh, that they're doing and also that uh, preparations that maybe businesses or people ought to do for uh, the event of a no-deal Brexit. Now, while this may keep uh, Brexiteers happy on the one hand, insofar as it appears they're doing something about preparing for a no-deal Brexit. The danger is that once people actually hear about some of the details of what you might have to do, are you going to have to stockpile food or whatever it is, then they might, uh, uh, in fact, uh, decide that actually a no-deal Brexit is something that they definitely don't want to have. And so what Theresa May perhaps will hope is that they'll then say, well, let's get behind the proposal that she's got. Now, you mentioned, um, uh, Dennis, on Monday, she was speaking to workers in the North East, engineering workers. Um, let's just actually hear a clip of what she had to say. I think the UK is going to do really well post-Brexit. I think there are huge opportunities for us. We're a great entrepreneurial, innovative, creative uh, country. I think we've got huge skills here. Our universities are fantastic. You know, just look at the number of UK universities in, you know, in the top uh, tiers of universities across the world. I think we've got real opportunities post-Brexit. And we can be much more outward looking post-Brexit, um, hence the trade deals around the rest of the world, for example. I couldn't I help thinking, Dennis, when I listened to that clip, I was reminded really of the general election campaign when she clung to her mantra about strong and stable government right up to the last day, even when it was clear that, you know, the tide was kind of going out on her. Is that unfair? Do you think she still really believes in this plan, this Czechs proposal, and that she can actually win the support of both, you know, the support she needs in Brussels and the support she needs um, at home for it? I think she believes in the uh, in the approach, in that uh, she's decided that the approach has to be, on the one hand, to uh, try to cling to something like the red lines that she identified early on, so that Britain will leave the single market, it will leave the customs union, and it will leave the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. And the key thing uh, on top of all of that would be an end to the free movement of people from the European Union. But at the same time, to try to stay uh, effectively inside the, the single market for uh, goods and for agri-food and then to have, if not the customs union, to have something really quite similar to it. So she's hoping to uh, to push this line and, and I think to persuade people that you need to have some kind of compromise approach to make, you know, to keep the promise of Brexit, as she would say, but also then just to make sure that it's not an economic catastrophe. 
Her problem, of course, is that not only is her own party divided, and she's got a very, very uh, loud minority on the back benches uh, of Brexiteers who are determined to stop this plan, but also the Europeans aren't very keen because they regard it as cherry-picking the single market. And for the Europeans, you know, uh, so many things have been going wrong in the European Union about things like migration, the Eurozone, and they're divided about all these things. The one thing they have that they can all agree on is the single market. And they don't want to see Brexit undermining the single market or the integrity of the single market in any way. So that's the problem that she has. The other problem, though, which I think you saw on display there, and it it goes to the point you made about the general election, is that Theresa May has many qualities as a politician, uh, chief of which is indefatigability. But one of the qualities she doesn't have is that she's not very good at talking to people. And when she finds herself in these kinds of forums where she's, uh, you know, meeting ordinary people and taking questions and answers from, uh, say, workers in this engineering plant as she was yesterday, as opposed to from journalists, she tends to uh, retreat into repeating and parroting the same phrases. And it does leave people feeling uncomfortable and generally uh, unsatisfied as well. Now, um, since the uh, Chequers plan, since you brought it forward, of course, we know she lost two of her senior cabinet, two of her cabinet ministers, David Davis and, and Boris Johnson, and Dominic Rabb is now the, the Brexit secretary. There's been a marked kind of change in tone from him, hasn't there, from the, from what we saw from Davis? Yes, he's uh, he's a very different type of person. He's uh, he's a less relaxed kind of figure than David Davis, and he's been giving a sort of a sharper edge. And so yesterday, in Berlin, for example, he was uh, kind of taking the fight to the European Union and saying that uh, you know they can't complain that Britain hasn't come forward with proposals, and that the the danger is that because the uh, European Union is being so inflexible in its approach to the negotiations, that you could have an accident no-deal Brexit. Nobody wants it, but somehow you could just get to the end of the negotiations without being able to agree. What hasn't changed, though, is the status of the Brexit secretary, and that is that the Brexit secretary is not really doing the negotiating. The negotiating is being done uh, by the Prime Minister through her main uh, Brexit civil servant, a guy called Ollie Robbins. And uh, and, and so uh, that, that was one of the reasons why David Davis was so unhappy, because uh, the, you know, the Brexit department was being cut out of this. And so it's still the case that, uh, that Dominic Raab's main role is kind of to prepare for things like a no-deal Brexit and you know, to uh, to prepare for life after Brexit, and to some extent to sell the thing and to be the uh, the sort of the you know the face of the negotiations in Brussels. But he isn't going to be in control of the negotiations, and that's something he knew when he went into the job. And something you touched on um, earlier, Dennis, was um, the, the references to stockpiling food and preparing for you know lorry parks and the M26 and so on. In fact, Dominic Rabb was asked a question about this by Andrew Marr on, on the BBC at the weekend, and we can hear that now. There's been a report that, for instance, the British government is planning to stockpile food for a no-deal eventuality. Is that true? No, that, look, that, that's, that's not that, true. That kind of selective snippet that makes it into the media, I think is, uh, to the extent that the public um, uh, pay attention to it, I think is um, unhelpful. There's been a we, story, for instance, that the M26 in Kent is going to have to become, at least in part, a lorry park. Well, no, but of course, if we have no deal, we want to make sure that we're prepared at the border with the knock-on effects that that would have if, on the EU side, they take the worst-case scenario approach, which is, frankly, irrational. I'm confident we won't get there, but even if we did, we will have 
the planning in place, the preparation in place, the operational uh, matters in place, from the infrastructure to the planning laws to deal with that. I think what we heard there, Dennis, was a classic non-denial denial because um, um, having started, I suppose, denied the proposition put in by Andrew Marr, Dominic Rabb, then kind of, you know, really confirmed that these kind of plans are being put in place. Is the reality beginning to dawn on people in, in Britain that, you know, a no-deal Brexit will have practical consequences? Yes, I think there's been a bit more uh, talk about all of this and about things like uh, stockpiling food, about what would happen at the borders. Leo Varadkar uh, made uh, a remark about uh, the open skies uh, arrangement and so the idea that uh, that uh, British aircraft mightn't be able to, uh, to take off or to fly over European airspace, which was widely kind of misinterpreted and exaggerated here. But uh, so there has been quite a lot of talk about this. And then uh, most dramatically, uh, there was a report that the head of Amazon in the UK said that there would be public unrest within two weeks of uh, a no-deal Brexit. So uh, so people are aware of that. I think for people who are true believers in Brexit, though, they just regard this as scaremongering. And they refer always back to what they call Project Fear during the referendum campaign, where everybody was told that as soon as a no vote happens, that the economy would collapse. And uh, of course, that didn't happen. And, uh, and so they say, you know, these people are just... Uh, uh, you know, they're just using, you know, they're just trying to scare people. But having said that, there is, you know, some, uh, you know, there's no doubt that there is some anxiety. And again, it depends, I think, probably in what area of industry, say, people work. And so some people who are involved in import and export businesses or involved in uh, international supply chains or in road haulage or whatever, they're very conscious of what might happen. I think it should be said, though, that we're talking in these negotiations about two things. One is the withdrawal agreement, which is a legal text uh, about the circumstances, the arrangements for Britain's withdrawal from the European Union, which includes things like the amount of money they have to pay, the rights of European citizens in the UK and of UK citizens in Europe, and crucially, uh, Northern Ireland and this backstop for the border. And most of the uh, of this agreement has been agreed. It's just this very difficult issue of the backstop for the border and a couple of others that have yet to be agreed. So you've got that on the one hand. And if you get that uh, arrangement, if you get that, uh, you know, that um, withdrawal agreement, then you also have a transition period up to the end of 2020 where nothing changes. And that gives everybody a bit of security. And it means that at the end of March next year, the planes won't be falling out of the skies and the shops will not run out of food and all the rest of it. The other part of the negotiation is the future relationship between Britain and the EU. And for that, they just have to agree a political declaration. And while both sides say they'd like this to be very detailed, it doesn't actually have to be very precise. And so because it's not a legal text, there's room for some kind of ambiguity. And some of the Brexiteers, the ones who remained in the cabinet, people like uh, Michael Gove, they're inclined to say, look, let's get the withdrawal agreement sorted out and have something fairly vague about the future arrangement. And then once we're out of the European Union in March next year, that's when the real negotiations about trade and everything else begin. And and then let's sort of, you know, get tough and hard, but at least we'd be out by then. And their fear is that if they play too hard on this future relationship, uh, or indeed on the backstop for the border, and they end up without a withdrawal agreement, the parliament, rather than allowing a kind of a catastrophic uh, no-deal Brexit in March next year, will somehow delay Brexit or even possibly stop it altogether. And presumably, Dennis, just to wrap up, um, the, the atmosphere as negotiations continue through August will be helped a little by the fact that the Parliament isn't in session and, and people can maybe get down to some real business. 
Yes, I think it probably will be helped. Whatever they do agree, though, uh, like, for example, about the backstop for the border, uh, it's still going to have to come back uh, to, uh, to Parliament in one way or another. And and also the fact is that the European Union have uh, you know they've decided that they're going to negotiate in a transparent way. So everybody knows essentially what they're looking for and what they agree. And the key thing about the backstop really is: do these arrangements apply to Northern Ireland only, or should they apply to the whole of the UK? And the European Union insists that these arrangements must be Northern Ireland only. And what the UK is worried about there is that that would effectively create a border in the Irish Sea and would undermine the integrity of the constitutional order of the United Kingdom. And what I think you're going to see over the next few weeks is somehow uh, the two sides trying to find a way to square that circle and to get some kind of deal uh, that satisfies the uh, the absolute limits of what uh, the, the Irish and the Europeans can accept on the one hand and what Theresa May and particularly her allies in the DUP can accept on the other. Okay, Dennis, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.